0: listening to Ohio V the World, an Ohio history podcast.
1: The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at ohiovtheworldpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty.
0: Hey
2: guys, welcome to episode 5 of Ohio V. The World, an Ohio History Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about one of the great early heroes of the 20th century. The first real celebrity to come out of Columbus, Ohio. His name was Eddie Rickenbacker. We're happy to announce that our launch party is March 25th. It's at the soon to be candle lab location on grandview avenue um and we're looking forward to seeing everybody all the proceeds from that event and all the proceeds raised um by this podcast all go to the ohio history podcast educational assistance corporation it's a non um that gives money to high school seniors for college scholarship money uh based on an audio or video essay contest they do every year so We're happy to have started that, that Nonprofit Couples with the Podcast. You can always donate on the website, um, and we'll have some other ways that you guys can donate here in the future, but just to let you know, this whole podcast goes uh, to a good cause. Today's episode is called Ohio vs. Death. It's the story of Eddie Rickenbacker, a man who claims that he cheated death and he could enumerate stories of how he barely avoided the Grim Reaper. 134 times in his life, and I believe him. We're going to talk about as many of those times as we can today. It's Ohio versus death. We're going to talk about the story of Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Today's the first episode in a series of episodes we'll sprinkle throughout the first two seasons about flight. Ohio is the first in flight. Um, Today's beer for the episode, we're going to have ourselves a berserker from Zauber Brewing Company, zbeers.com. Our friend Jeff Towner is a great brewery, a German-style brewery um, in Grandview on West 5th Avenue. Go check them out. Great beers, including this IPA. So today, we're actually sitting in Mott's Military Museum. It's a museum in Groveport, Ohio. It's in southeast Franklin County. It's run by Warren Mott, and it's an incredible place. They have exhibits on every single war this country's ever fought. From the Revolutionary War and with actual artifacts and things from that, all those those battles, all those wars, the Spanish-American War, the wars with the Indians, the Mexican-American War, even has parts of, of the history from 9-11. And when he's done, after he raises all this money, Warren Mott will open the second largest 9-11 museum this country's ever seen. He's got a New York City fire truck that the Twin Towers fell on. He used to have Arnold Schwarzenegger's tank when he was in the Austrian army. Uh, Arnold, who comes to Columbus a lot for his fitness expo every year. But this museum is a real hidden gem. And Warren was great enough to, to let us to let us come here today. And we're sitting. He has an entire Eddie Rickenbacker exhibit. He has his old car. I mean, he's got, he's got all kinds of stuff from Rickenbacker's life. But one thing he has, and we'll ask him about it, and it's where we're recording today. We're recording in a replica, two-scale replica, including the white picket fence of Eddie Rickenbacker's childhood home in Columbus, Ohio. It was located on East Livingston Avenue, and the city wouldn't let Warren move the the house off of East Livingston, so he simply built a replica. And we'll talk to to Warren about that, and it's a real treat to just sit here in this, this home, Uh, Eddie grew up very poor, no no electricity, no water. Um, We did sneak a little electricity in here today so we could record, but uh, we're going to join Warren Mott, and we're going to talk about Ohio versus death in the childhood home of Eddie Rickenbacker, the Ace of Aces, Columbus's first true celebrity. once said courage is doing what you're scared to do there can be no courage unless you're afraid so today we're talking about captain eddie and we're talking about ohio versus death and how this man really basically pioneered the age of speed eddie rickenbacker was born in 1890 here in columbus and he's born to a terribly poor immigrant family His dad works at one of the breweries in German Village. They actually live behind one of the breweries. But they just have no money. He has mismatching shoes. Kids make fun of him for being, you know, first of all, for being an immigrant, uh, even though he was born here. And second of all, for being literally the poorest kid in the class. But Eddie rises above that. And he lives a life of incredible consequence. He is the pioneer of speed in this country. Eddie Rickenbacker is the ace of aces, which means he shot down the most German planes of any American in World War I. 26 planes to be exact. Well, 26 aircrafts. We'll get into four of them. were, we're scouting balloons, but those counted. And he was also one of the country's finest auto racers. At the beginning of the the, ninth, uh, the 20th century, he raced in the first Indianapolis 500. He once owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Indianapolis, where the, Indy, the Brickyard, where the Indy 500 still is today. Eddie Rickenbacker comes from absolute obscurity. And the way that he makes himself a household name in the first half of the 20th century, makes himself the most famous celebrity in Columbus, Columbus experiences a giant population boom from 1870, when it had 31,000 citizens, to 1910, when it has over 180, a 600% increase. Around the same time that Eddie's dad dies is the same time that the automobile is introduced in American life. This is before the Model T, which was built later in, in the 19 aughts. This was a time where just seeing an automobile was a big deal. And as a young man, a car was going to be shown in downtown Columbus. And Eddie walks to the corner of Broad and High Street, which is really still today the center of downtown Columbus. And there's arches over every street, metal arches. Columbus used to be called the Arch City in the early 1900s. Arches on every block that have actually electric lights in them, which was still a pretty big novelty. And we're known for our arches in the downtown area on a high street and other streets extending north and south but little eddie's there that day to see a car in action and this day changed his life forever the man who is going to drive the car he's telling everyone there that every person's going to have an automobile in the years to come and he asks who in the audience wants to take a ride and somehow eddie little eddie rickenbacker raises his hand and the man picks him how about you boy he gets in the car and the man drives him around a block, Eddie, around the state house and around downtown Columbus and takes him back. Eddie's life was never the same. He has to drop out of school after his dad dies. He, war- he works at garages, he gets any odd jobs he can to work on automobiles, and he works
0: on engines. And he gets
2: a job at a place that columbus was famous for columbus was a booming town in the 1880s the 1890s and one of the biggest businesses we were known for was buggies columbus was the buggy capital of the country so the onset of automobiles is not a good thing for for a town built on buggies all the way up and down the scioto river Buggies, buggy parts are being made. Um, the Columbus Buggy Company. You would still see the buggy works down by the, the hockey arena and the AAA baseball stadium today. Um, but they line the river. This industry just dumping chemicals into the, into the dirty uh, Scioto River. But the Columbus Buggy Works. That's where Eddie gets a job. And it's a dream come true for him. The buggy works, they have to evolve too. And they start building cars and selling cars. And Eddie Rickenbacker, a teenage Eddie Rickenbacker, is helping them. He's one of their best employees. And he becomes a supervisor. And he moves his way up the Columbus Buggy Company. We talk with Warren Mott about Mr. Rickenbacker. We talk about his crazy childhood. He was a wild child. He once got hit by a cable car. (laughs) Just hit by a trolley in downtown Columbus. Was nearly killed. Hijinks with his friends. Um, he was in a little gang, but Eddie Rickenbacker was cheating death even as a small child. We talked to Warren about those early years in Columbus around the turn of the century.
1: Well, he, uh, he, he was kind of a, a, a tough kid. <laughs> he, was, he was raised pretty rough, and he was not a, a conformer, and his dad had to discipline him more than once. And Really, uh, I think that helped form his life because uh, he had to work hard at what he. He actually just liked to fluff off and have fun and do crazy things when he was a kid, and uh, he, he ended up. He he belonged. One of the incidents which I thought was really neat. He belonged to a group called the Horsehead Gang, yeah. and they were a bunch of kids. The Horsehead. Uh, the yeah.
2: Horsehead Gang. Uh, I think they took their name from uh, the horsehead that was at Driving Park. Uh, which is, right. I think, right by his his home. That's
1: right. It was right down the road from where Mm -hmm. he actually was raised. That's exactly right there. And when he was 12 years old and his dad died, it changed his life totally because every one of those kids, there were eight of them that were raised here, and eight of them had to go to work because if they didn't work, they didn't eat. Unlike today, we don't have welfare or things like that. These kids had to actually go to work. So Eddie was a hard-working kid. He realized if he was going to get anywhere... He had to do the best he could do, and he, he had to, to excel in it, or he wasn't going to get anywhere. Uh, and and like he believed in the in the American way too. Uh, you know that that was the way. Just hard work is what made you what you were. And again, that was kind of instilled into him by his father as well.
2: Just kind of his his teenage years. You know, he he drops out of school obviously after his father's death, like you said. Um, what is, what's he do in Columbus kind of in his early years before he gets into auto racing? I, I remember he got a job with the Columbus Buggy Company. I know that was a big industry here by the river.
1: Yeah, that was the thing that really got him going. When he first His first job he ever had, uh, the, the family indicated to me that, that he went out to find a job. He went into a, a factory and told him he'd sweep the floor. They said, we don't need anybody to sweep the floor. He said, but just let me sweep it once, and if you don't like it, fine. And Eddie did a fabulous job, and when he finished, the guy hired him on the spot. Because he learned that whenever he did something, do it right. So that was the beginning.
2: He, I know there's a story. He He's on Chestnut Street, which is uh, kind of by the hockey arena now. And there was a, there was a car, uh, there was basically a, a showroom there for automobiles and a garage. And, and he did start even working there, and I think he started working there for no money. That's right. So I think that was like his third job at that time when he took that on. And that kind of got him into some of the...
1: Cars, he loved, yeah. <laughs> and mechanical stuff. Anything mechanical, he loved that stuff. Uh, he even took a, a correspondence course in engineering to try to help uh, with what he was doing. So I, I, uh, again, he was working hard at what he was doing to try to become somebody. But but cars fascinated him. And that's when he got involved, you know, with the with the race car end of it. He started, thought that that would be a good idea to get into. <laughs>
2: 1910, Eddie Rickenbacker finds his way into auto racing as a mechanic, an incredible driver. He's fearless, and he takes the corners as fast as he can. He does the preparation. He's an incredible auto racer. He moves his way up the ranks, becomes one of the country's great racers. The early days of auto racing, cars have only existed for, you know, a decade. The racers are going somewhere around, you know, 50, 60 miles an hour. I believe 1905, around 60 miles an hour was the record. Eddie and his fellow racers, they start to get into speeds much higher than that. And they approach 100 miles an hour in Eddie's early days and get even faster and faster. I think Eddie ends up going about 135 miles an hour as an average towards the end of his racing times. But racing, back in the day, you had two people in the car. You had the driver and the mechanic. The mechanic was always pumping the engine to keep the oil levels up. He was doing this and that just to keep the car running. It was a two-person operation. There was no, no seat belts There, No one had even thought to invent, at this point, a rear-view mirror. So the mechanic's always looking behind you for you, letting you know you have little signals because the engine's so loud you can't hear them, even though they're right next to you. No rearview mirrors, no seat belts, and there's no tracks. There aren't paved, you know, tracks like at the Indianapolis 500 or Daytona that we see nowadays. I mean, you were running on gravel and mud tracks. Um, when you're going 100 miles around a curve into gravel, the things would fly up in the air and hit you. There were no helmets or anything like that for the drivers. They had goggles. Eddie had goggles, but they get so covered in mud and and stuff, and they called it gumbo. These balls of rock and mud that would fly around they'd hit you, they'd cut your arms, they would hit you in the face, um, gumbo is what they called it. And Eddie makes his way into racing and, and slowly progresses and there's a giant race in Sioux City. It's the Sioux City 500 or Sioux City 300 and his team's nearly out of money. They have to pay to go from place to place and repairs and, and the, the cost of moving around a, a, a racing team is very expensive, especially if you're not winning. And Eddie's placing, but they're not making enough money. This is the biggest purse in the country in 1914, Memorial Day weekend. And people come from all over the country to watch to watch the Sioux City 300. All the best racers are there from England. And this is before the war when the Europeans were still very much into racing. And all the best American racers are all going to be there at Sioux City. And Rickenbacker's in the hunt when the race starts. He's actually in second place, and he's trailing probably America's best young racer a man named Spencer Wishart, married to a movie star. He's rich. He's, he's one of the country's finest racers. Auto racing is so dangerous at this time. People die every race. Mechanics, drivers, every single race people die. Wishart himself, the country's best racer, would be dead within a month and a half of this race. Eddie's in second place and he's trying to pass Wishart and he can't quite do it. And he sees his oil levels just dropping and dropping. He's elbowing the mechanic behind him saying, you know, what are you doing? And the young mechanic, and he keeps elbowing, him, and the car is it's beginning to stall. The oil pressure's dropped so low. Wishart's getting away from him. All this hard work, one of the hardest races anyone's ever seen, the Sioux City 300, when he realizes that a piece of that gumbo, that rocky gravel mud ball mix, has knocked out his mechanic. He's knocked out. Eddie has to start driving with one hand. And with superhuman strength, he's he's pumping the engine back full of oil and doing all the things his mechanic's supposed to be doing. He's knocked out cold. And he's out for about 15 minutes. Um, Eddie stays in the race. His mechanic, he's, he's hitting the mechanic. He's driving. I love this story. Um, when I was reading it, I read a couple different versions of it. But it's the biggest race of the year, the biggest purse, $25,000 purse. And Eddie is driving and being the mechanic at the exact same time. He's slapping the young mechanic who finally wakes up. Um, He wakes up, and Eddie actually vaults into the lead and beats Spencer Wishart, wins the Sioux City 300, saves his Duesenberg racing team um, with the giant purse that they get. Another guy on the team, I think, finished fifth or sixth. And he wakes up, and Eddie actually vaults into the lead and beats Spencer Wishart, wins the Sioux City 300, saves his Duesenberg racing team, Um, with the giant purse that they get. Another guy on the team, I think, finished fifth or sixth. And that race, that victory, saves them in the 1914 season. They're able to continue racing. I think he gets 10th at the Indy 500 that year. Um, But that win catapults Rickenbacker into national fame. When Eddie talks about racing, he says, you don't win races because you had more guts. You win because you knew how to take the turns and baby your engine. It wasn't all just shut your eyes and grit your teeth. It might not have all been just shut your eyes and grit your teeth, but it was incredibly dangerous. We talked with Warren Mott about early auto racing, the career of Eddie Rickenbacker, and how that career launches him into worldwide stardom in the years to come. You talk that Eddie's life, he mentioned that he cheated death 134 times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he could tell you about each of those times. Um, tell me just you know a couple stories, some of your favorite stories of Eddie cheating death and, and and uh, if you really believe him, about 134 times.
1: Well, yeah, I believed him with that because when you think about what this man went through, even as a kid, like I say, he was doing crazy things as a kid. Before, like in that cart we talked about coming down that hill. I mean, that was stupid stuff. But you know, and the older he got, he got a little more. Uh, what can I say? A little more uh, cautious, cautious and careful with what he did. But but he still got into things that were unbelievable. And when you go through his life and see, especially. His times in racing because more than once he crashed in racing and survived
2: well there's no seatbelts back then you know there's no rear view mirrors it was no
1: nothing <laughs> and these guys were flying like we said I mean that was a lot that was awful you
2: know, it, was, it was really dangerous to even be a spectator at those things they didn't have grandstands like we have now you were out on the course that's right and you, you would lose uh you know the state of New York New York's governor actually banned all street racing in 1913. Um, (laughs) after after I think about 20 people died Spectators died at a race and he said that's it no more racing, it's too dangerous that's That's too dangerous for the people watching it Eddie becomes a household name in 1916 his final year, his final full year of racing, he wins $80,000, a giant sum of money in those days and as he prepares for the 1917 season everything changes in the United States Everything changes for Eddie Rickenbacker, and as he makes that trip to England, the United States enters the war. The war begins in August 1914. Millions of men rush to war. It's the first modern war involving planes and machine guns and tanks, modern artillery, and people are dying by the millions, not the thousands, the millions. On the first day of the Somme, the Battle of the Somme, the British Army loses sixty thousand casualties in one day. Slaughter on a scale no one's ever imagined. If you're a podcast fan or a history fan, I, I encourage you to listen to my my uh, one of my podcasting idols, Dan Carlin, has a six part I don't know twenty four hour series uh, called Blueprint to Armageddon. It's an incredible, it's one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. It's about World War One, And it's about World War One mostly from the European perspective, not so much the American perspective. as we don't get in until almost the very end. But in 1915, there's submarines. The German U-boats are, are off the coast, and they're blowing up American shipping vessels. Unrestricted submarine warfare, they called it. In 1915, the Lusitania is famously sunk. Wilson still keeps us out of war, even though hundreds of Americans are killed. Of course, the Lusitania, they, would, they did not tell people at the time, but the Lusitania also was full of munitions for the British Army. Weaponry, um, ammunition, that kind of stuff. Um, the Lusitania sunk. And in 1916, an even bigger event, as far as Americans were concerned, happens at Black Tom Island at the end of July in 1916. German saboteurs set fire to the armory armory and munition depot just off the shore at Jersey City, New Jersey, right across the river from New York City. It explodes. The explosion is felt as far away as Philadelphia. It's a massive explosion. It even damages the Statue of Liberty. It's an earthquake felt at a Richter scale of about 5.5. It's felt as far away as Maryland. But the explosion brings the war home to America. The government changes their tactics. People with German-sounding last names are being surveilled. People are being put in jail for talking bad about the government, the Alien and Sedition Act. Things change in the country. It's it's around this time that Eddie Rickenbacker actually changes his spelling of his last name. Instead of being Rickenbacker, B-A-C-H, he changes to Rickenbacker as we know it now, B-A-C-K-E-R, more American-sounding. And it's during this background that Eddie takes that trip to England to prepare for the 1917 racing season. America's still not at war. Wilson wins the re-election narrowly in 1916 over Charles Evan Hughes, and Americans began to distrust their German-American neighbors. German-sounding things were bad. Eddie makes the trip to England, um, and on the boat, he strikes up a conversation with a couple of younger guys. Um, they know who he is, they, they, he spends the entire trip with them having drinks, and they land there in England, and he sees these guys again, and he sees a couple of uh, guys from Scotland Yard stop him, and he realizes that the guys who'd been following him on the trip were actually agents of Scotland Yard. Eddie Rickenbacker, a German-sounding American. What's he doing in England? They take him into custody. He tells them what he's there for. He gives them names and numbers. They won't let him call home. And they actually rough him up quite a bit. They beat him up. They interrogate him. They keep him in a cell for days. They rub lemon juice on him in case he has some kind of deep, secretly coded messages written on his body in invisible ink. Paranoid stuff, but this is the way it was. They thought he was could be a German spy. Rickenbacker realizes that the world's changed, that the, the United States. While he's on this trip, he does finally get released. He, the men in Liverpool that he'd come to see, finally get his release from the from the Scotland Yard agents. Um, but while he's there in England, the United States. Wilson goes to the Congress and asks for a declaration of war, and a few days later, by a massive. Majority, they give him that declaration. And the United States enters World War One in the spring of 1917. Eddie's. German spy by the British. He's been beat up. He's been imprisoned, um, accused. And he's a very patriotic American. And to him, he decides that he needs to join the war effort. He's going to show anyone who doesn't think that Eddie Rickenbacker, or a German American, can't be a, a solid patriot. He returns home and he goes to D.C. and he set up a meeting with the Army uh, Air Corps. And he gives them a plan. He spoke with some of his friends of starting an air division with all of his race driving and mechanic friends that they who would be better to head up such a you know an an important position as 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 being pilots for the american air force there wasn't even an air force it was just a part of the army but he's turned down eddie has a tonsillectomy around this time and they put him to under and when he wakes up he's bleeding out of his neck just can't stop the bleeding. He's bleeding everywhere. He's getting weak. The nurses can't stop it. An intern comes in, a doctor. He can't stop it. The original doctor performed the surgery. He's nowhere to be found. And Eddie is almost, almost dead. He actually talks about how he was seeing, you know, almost those pearly gates, the bright light that we that people talk about. It's probably the closest he comes to death at this young age. And he's able to stop the bleeding a nicked artery in his neck was almost the cause of his death before he even goes to the war. He still looks back on that as one of the closest times he ever came to dying. We almost lost the unstoppable Eddie Rickenbacker to a tonsillectomy. Around that same time, President Wilson has an idea of, as we're getting ready to send our our best generals and, and begin sending the American Expeditionary Force to Europe and to France. We need some people to drive these guys around. We need experienced drivers. And he had, comes up with the idea of asking a few race car drivers to drive around General Pershing, the head of the AEF, and other you know high-ranking officials in the American Army. And Eddie gets a call. He's, he's in Cincinnati on business. And he gets a call saying if you can get to New York, um, as fast as you can get to New York, you have this job. You can be the driver for for one of the generals. Well, He thought it was going to be General Pershing at the time, but uh, it would end up being Billy Mitchell. But he gets the call, and he's in Cincinnati, and they say, if you can get here, the job is yours. And he leaves. He, he runs back to Columbus to say goodbye to his mother, tend to a few business affairs in the capital city, and he drives overnight to New York City. And the next thing he knows, he's on a boat, on his way to France, on his way to World War One.
1: Well, well, he ended up. It was it was a Billy Mitchell uh, that uh, it's not been proven about Pershing, but I always thought that too, and I always said that, and it could very well be, but we couldn't really prove that particular part of it. But the, he definitely he, drove Mitchell. Yeah, uh, but but Pershing is what they always said. But then when he got out there, Billy Mitchell he got with because Billy Mitchell was a pilot. And, and Eddie wanted to fly, and it was interesting. He was making forty thousand dollars a year before forty to sixty thousand before he went into the army as a race car driver. And he got a commission or a sergeant promotion to become a sergeant to go overseas. And he was twenty-seven years old, which is pretty old. He was,
2: he was too old to enter the flying corps. He's too old to. That's actually, right. go through the training uh, normally.
1: Exactly right, and 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 so when when he got on that ship and went over there, he ended up uh, driving uh, Billy Mitchell with a with a, it was a uh, uh, a flashy twin six Packard automobile, buddy, and it was fast. But they were all scared to death to ride with him because man, he moved in that car. <laughs> <laughs> but he kept bugging Billy Mitchell to fly and to give him a chance. But he had never been involved in aircraft. And when he got over there, when you think about this, here's a kid wants to fly. He don't know nothing about airplanes. Absolutely nothing about flying.
2: So how did he get the job? He, he gets a flying gig uh, with well, the 94th Aero Squadron. How did well, he do well, it?
1: Billy? He pestered Billy Mitchell to death until he finally said, well, just let me take the training. He said, but you don't have a college education. You, you should have a college education to be a pilot.
2: All he had was that correspondence course you talked about. Yeah,
1: that was it. So, so he ended up... Uh, Billy Mitchell said, okay, all right, we'll get you a trainer and we'll teach you to fly. 17 hours later, they made him a pilot.
2: We talked with Warren about just how dangerous these planes were, just how dangerous early combat flying was in World War I.
1: He did, and he knew how to maneuver, even though the aircraft was extremely dangerous at the time. Not well, only, <laughs> I mean, they weren't the best of the best at that time. They were just brand new, practically. You know? That
2: leads us into a great discussion. Um, I think the most dangerous thing he did in his life was fly those planes, those Newport 28s, yes. um, in, in combat over the Western Front. So as many different examples we give in the episode of, of him cheating death and, and things that he did that were dangerous just taking those planes um what i just consider those planes just death traps i mean they oh. were highly flammable they were basically the planes that were given to us um That's right on loan by because the french said they had a design flaw and they were too dangerous to fly talk about some of those just talk about the early the early combat plane
1: yeah they were canvas and wood i mean i mean My golly! At one point, Eddie came back. The whole plane was shot to pieces. Part of the the prop had been taken off, but he managed to land that thing in 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 uh, Allied territory. Yeah, he
2: landed just just over the lines in Allied territory and got a ride back to the.
1: And and the the the, the wings had bullet holes all through it. And I'm telling you, when you think about it, it's just a, a flying coffin, basically. And a lot of them called it that too. And actually, when Eddie, when they named him the Ace of Aces, he didn't like that because anybody that got that name would end up dying. <laughs> I think
2: I think the the six previous Ace of Aces in America yep. all died or at least were shot down. I think that's Jimmy exactly Hall, right. one of them, actually did survive, but he was a prisoner till the end of the war. But when he became the Ace of Aces, he was really paranoid. That's right, boy. He's the only that's one good. who survived having that title on his head.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and half the times the guns would jam. And then you wouldn't have anything to fire, or if something went out of sync, you'd blow the props off. <laughs> so there was a lot of hazards with those aircraft.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Newport, one of the, the French didn't use it. And, and, you know, one thing that really disappointed me when I researched World War One about our war effort at home, and really it's more of a government a government letting us down, but they said we'd have 20,000 airplanes over to, to Europe for just us, the French can use our planes. We never sent a single American-made plane into the World War I theater.
1: Gee, I hadn't heard that one.
2: We play for you the song Over There, which was the American Army's theme song in 1970. When America enters the war in 1917 and really in full force begins sending actual troops who are done with training and ready to actually fight in 1918, the, the war has changed. Americans can claim that they turn the tide in the war. The Russians are knocked out of the war in 1917 by the Germans, uh, by a revolution at home that overthrows Tsar Nicholas II, the Bolsheviks, in a series of revolutions, take control. And they decide that they're out of the war. Part of their promise that that they have is that, you know, we're going to give you bread and peace, is what the Bolsheviks say. To make good on that, they sign what's called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. It's a terrible treaty, When the terms for the Russians that the Germans make them sign. But the most important thing is, is they're out of the war. And the Germans begin rushing thousands of troops from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. They've won the war in the East as far as they're concerned, with the Ottoman Empire barely hanging on. The uh, Austro-Hungarians also barely hanging on. The French are beset by a series of mutinies within their army. Three years, and these people no longer want to fight anymore. The, The carnage, the conditions in the trenches are so horrible. That now the French might be teetering on on asking for a a peace from the Germans. Some sort of truce that they can just stop the fighting. The British have been knocked down repeatedly. We said they lost 60,000 men in one day at the Somme. There's 20 battles like that. The British army is is war-weary. They're running out of people to put into the fight, new soldiers. And they need the Americans, and the Germans know this. And the Germans, Kaiser Wilhelm, and his commanding general, Erich von Ludendorff, begin designing what's called the Kaiserschlacht, the final battle, the Kaiser's major battle. This series of offensives along the Western Front is meant to knock the French out of the war before the Americans can replace them. It's designed to, to send the British all the way back to the sea into Belgium, and basically knock them out of the war. And if we can do that here in the next two or three months before the Americans are fully entrenched and their numbers and their experience grow, we can still win the war. And in March of 1918, the Germans launched this massive offensive. They set off one of the longest artillery barrages of all time, one of the the most, I don't even know the number of, of, of mortars that are fired. But it's hours, 10 hours long, 12 hours long. Again, listen to Dan Carlin. Uh, it's episode 6 where he talks about 1918. This symphony of just explosions. And they go over the top. And the Germans in the early part of the Flock, it's their best troops. They throw in their best remaining troops. And they have huge successes. It's at this same time in March and April, Eddie and his men are maybe 15 miles behind the lines at their air base. And they're hearing these reports coming in. American soldiers are slowly getting into the fight, but the Germans are gathering giant swaths of land. These are lines that haven't moved in three years on the Western Front, and the Germans are picking up 10, 12, 20 miles of that territory. Anyone who tells you that the Germans never could have won World War I, they do not know how close it was in the spring and summer of 1918. The Kaiserschlacht is a complete success. Ludendorff's final mission To knock the French out of the war and ultimately get peace on their terms is working. But the Americans enter the war. Eddie Rickenbacker enters the war. And in April, he shoots down his first German ship. Eddie begins flying combat missions. And in April, the end of April, he shoots down his first plane. He goes into a long dive to avoid other fighters around him and the covering The canvas that covers his wings flies off, damages the plane, and it's almost unflyable. He almost dies the first time he shoots someone down. He's able to just get over enemy lines and put the ship down, and he's able to get home. Eddie kills six or shoots down six Germans in the first month he's in the war. Other Americans shot down more, they become the ace of aces. He becomes an ace after shooting down five in May of 1918, but other flyers have shot down more ships than Eddie Rickenbacker. And in the summer of 1918, he suffers a debilitating ear problem. Whenever he's flying, the pain is so bad, the headaches and the ear pain, that he, he basically is taken to a military hospital. He spends a lot of that summer in Paris, a Paris that is being shelled by the Germans' new long guns, a Paris that is briefly evacuated, a is on the verge of falling to a German army. But slowly, the Allies begin to beat back the Germans. The Germans' punch was not a knockout punch. And the counterattacks by the Americans and the French and the British begin showing results. By the end of the summer, the Germans are on the retreat. Eddie gets back, he lies about his medical condition, says he's fine, and gets back in the fight in the early fall. And he goes on a tear. On September 24th, 1918, Eddie Rickenbacker, hiding in the clouds above a group of German fokkers that was the name of the aircraft, the fokker um, he swoops down on seven German ships. He destroys two ships in about five or ten minutes and manages to slip away before the other ones even knew what came in. He flies with the sun to his back to shield him. He swoops down from the clouds. It's a master move. Two German ships are destroyed before they even know it hit him, and he's able to get away. He's flying a new ship, a SPAD, slightly less combustible ship, the Newport 28 he used to fly. It was said that they could catch fire just by looking at him. This ship is a little more reliable. Not much, but a little more reliable. Eddie's actions on September 24th, actually later, in 1931, earned him a medal of honor from President Hoover, at a ceremony at the White House. He was given a service cross for eight of which that he won in the war, but it was this day, this bold move to shoot down two ships, to attack seven German fighters with his one plane, that earned Eddie a medal of honor in 1931 from our government. Well, I mean, you know, just another thing: there were no parachutes. Uh, um,
1: well, that. A good point. Most people didn't realize that that parachute didn't come till later, and you go up in that plane, man. You got nothing to do but if you got shot up, to try to crash land that thing.
2: And I, th- I think that was, you know, the government, the secretary or the War Department's reasoning. What and it was stupid. It was flawed, and it really upset Eddie that they didn't have parachutes. But the idea was that the equipment was so important that they didn't want pilots having the option of of leaving the aircraft and crashing it. Which <laughs> that is,
1: was the mindset. You're right. Which, which is crazy. Make any sense.
2: No, I think the pilots are more important equipment. Well, yeah. Uh, when, you tr- equipment. when you think,
1: well, even today, you know, the, what a cost to train a pilot? My lordy. I mean, millions of dollars, practically. But in that day and age, again, to find somebody that could do it, though, that was pretty good. Yeah. And Eddie was one of the outstanding ones.
2: Yeah, so there were no parachutes ever given to American pilots. The only parachutes that were given um, in the war, the final six weeks of the war, the German Air Force was finally able to convince their government to give them parachutes. And anyone in those, you know, you had a lot of scouting balloons. Anyone in a balloon, because they were such I yep. mean, easy targets, all those guys were given, uh, uh, were given balloons during the war. But not a single American pilot had a parachute during World War One
1: yeah it was uh, it was a difficult time when you think about it and and like you say, they didn't want to lose the airplane <laughs> they wanted to bring that darn thing back one way or the other if they couldn't save it.
2: <laughs> he also suffers the death of his first trainer and his aero squadron's leader Raul luffberry luffberry plane is shot up, and his plane catches fire and It's not known exactly what happened, but basically it looks like luffberry instead of basically you know burning alive decides to jump out of the airplane is either he decided to jump out or he forgot to fasten his safety belt in a hurry to get up in the air after a call that germans were spotted nearby eddie always said that he jumped but one thing to remember is there's no parachutes the u.s government has determined that these ships are too valuable and that if you give the pilots parachutes they will, at the first sight of danger, they will just eject and leave their ships, and they'll, the the government will lose these valuable planes that they paid so much money for. Eddie always hated that, that strategy. He, and he said, if you spend any time with these flyers, you know that we would never do anything like that. There were three options if your ship was on fire or if you were shot down because they were so combustible. When you were shot down, usually the fuselage was so close to the rest of the plane that it would just go up in a matter of seconds and you'd be burned the ship would be burned and you'd die there are three options to try and angle it into the wind so that somehow the the wind from the from the air would would put the fire out very difficult to do two a lot of guys would bring their service revolvers with them and if they got into a situation like luffberry where they were going down in a flaming um a flaming spad or a flaming newport 28 they would just shoot themselves. You saw a lot of that in both armies, German and American. Your third option, appears to be the one that Loughberry took, was he would just jump. He was found, actually impaled, over a white picket fence in a small French town, and Eddie drove out to find him, and he was buried by the townspeople in a bouquet of, of flowers around him at the grave. It was one of many people that Eddie lost during the war to the point that you wouldn't even want to become friends with these people because days later they'd be gone. One out of eight U.S. air pilots were either shot down and became POWs or were killed during World War I. Eddie Rickenbacker flew the most missions and the most hours of anyone in the American Army during the war and survived to tell about it. germans are on the run eddie and his boys are flying missions up and down the lines fighting with germans fighting with german fighters shooting on the trenches and they can see that the germans are in a basically a full retreat the end of the war seems near and in october 1918 eddie rickenbacker shoots down 14 german aircrafts 14 air- aircraft in 30 days some of those days if the weather wasn't well you wouldn't fly it's this run that leaves him as the ace of aces in World War I, 26 aircraft shot down by Rickenbacker. We talked to Warren Mott about the final day, armistice day of the war, November 11th, the pure joy that Eddie and his, and his other combat fighters felt, and what Eddie does at 11.11 11 a.m. on November 11th of 1918, when the war was over. So the war ends... It's November 11th, uh, 1918, at 11.11 11 a.m., Armistice Day. Um, you were telling me a story when we met last week. Yeah. What does Eddie do when the, when the war finally ends?
1: Well, they they were everybody was supposed to be grounded. Nobody was supposed to do nothing because the war was over. They didn't want anybody to think that we're going to be a fight or somebody's going to shoot somebody. Eddie got in his airplane and flew right down the line, looking at what was going on, and he could see the Americans— and the Germans coming out and meeting.
2: In, in no man's land. In no
1: man's land when they found out the war was over. It was cheering and all that stuff, but Eddie got to see it from the air.
2: And he comes home to to a hero's welcome here in Columbus. Uh, I, I pulled some old Columbus dispatches from those days when he came back just to look at the front page. Um... Would you say he was the most famous person from Columbus up until that point when he comes home in
1: 1919? Oh, yeah. They, Eddie didn't like the fame that much either. He was not a person to like that fame. And he had all kinds of people wanting him to do. They wanted him to star in movies. They'd give him $100,000 to be in a movie. He didn't want to do it, and he wouldn't do it. He didn't feel that that was the right thing to do, uh, that, that that wasn't the thing to do. But he was a hero. I mean, and everybody turned out to see him, uh, and it was... It was uh, Hard for him at some points to accept all that.
2: Yeah, I mean, he even, um, when he comes back, a lot of his fellow uh, pilots who are famous, you know, some of the other guys in the squadron, they do barnstorming tours and fly yep. their planes at, you know, whether it's a county fair or whatever, just to make money. They'll go across the country and say, uh, you know, and just fly that stuff. He didn't do anything like that. He just came home.
1: Yeah, and he ended up giving speeches and doing things like that, and he was offered all kinds of jobs, but he still liked the mechanical part of things and got involved then with the automobile. Uh, and he could see the future of automobiles, I think. That was the thing that was really working in his mind.
2: Yeah, he, like I said, he's the pioneer of the age of speed. Um, and he starts his own company, and, and they actually named the car the Rickenbacker company, the Car Company. Right. Um, and for almost eight years, they are a major player in, in the auto industry. Um, talk about the Rickenbacker Autos. Uh, those years, you know, after the war from 1920, I think in 27, they do finally shut down Rickenbacker, um, yeah, he, he, But talk about, you know, I, I think you even have one here on the property.
1: You betcha. We got a Rickenbacker automobile, which is pretty unbelievable. It, he started a car company, I think with was 1922 in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, everything was going great. He actually was flying to different parts of the country with parts and starting his businesses so that he could sell automobiles in different parts of the country, uh, and the the one of the big problems was for him is he invented the first car with four wheel brakes. But every company come out against him saying four wheel brakes are too dangerous, they stop too fast. So they actually run Eddie out of business. And it's a kind of a shame because again, he was a leader. And when you talk about the Rickenbacker automobile, this car we got here, we got a little gal, Annie Gillen, who is our mechanic, and that gal is unbelievable she's actually got that car running like a sewing machine
2: (laughs) that your rickenbacker your 1925 actually runs
1: our 1925 runs beautifully
2: eddie gets into airplanes and he becomes an owner of eastern air later i think we would know it as continental airlines um but in 1941 eddie's making a flight from new york to atlanta and the pilot crashes upon landing they don't make it to the airport crashes through the trees bounces off the ground the plane's ripped into three pieces many of the people on the flight are dead eddie suffers a broken hip a bunch of other terrible injuries and is thought to be dead he's taken to the hospital it's actually reported that he was dead um in 1941 eddie almost dies again in another plane crash um Talk about that crash. He's on an Eastern, uh, Eastern Air flight to, from New York, I believe, to Atlanta.
1: Yeah, again, he was flying with his, his uh, company, uh, I mean, with Eastern Airlines. He had a special compartment right behind the pilot, too. It was a stateroom kind of on the aft side of the aircraft. And uh, uh, the plane ended up crashing, killing everybody on it. Eddie was badly beaten up, uh, badly hurt. They took him in the hospital, and his doctor took a picture, which we actually have the photograph in here from his family album that his doctor took. And he had a note in there. The doctor says that that they announced on the radio that Eddie was killed in an airplane crash. And he picked up a pitcher of water and threw it at the radio and said, "I'm not dead yet."
2: <laughs> so he heard his own—probably not the first time—but he heard his own death notice.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> it was pretty amazing that he survived that thing. I mean, that was that was a pretty drastic thing.
2: Um, that crash—it's—you know—I think he said that. Right before they crash, he got the notion to go into the back of the airplane. Yep. Um, and had he not done that seconds before the crash, he, he would have died with just about everybody else who was because on that the flight. the pilot
1: and everybody up front, yeah. That's exactly what happened.
2: Um, but in 1942, he's taken off to deliver a secret message. He's working for the Army now.
1: And he ended up, uh, the plane uh, that he was on, he was in the South Pacific, and uh, the they actually wanted to give him a generalship too. They wanted to make him a brigadier general. He wouldn't take it. Yeah. Uh, and but he said no. And actually, he at that point when they were asking him to do this stuff at the beginning, he 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 uh, only charged a dollar and paid all of his own expenses to do this stuff, which was pretty amazing too. He, which was he's the ultimate patriot, isn't he? Yeah. That that I think says a lot about Eddie and himself right there. But he did have a message he was supposed to give to MacArthur. That plane got lost, it went down in the South Pacific, it was a B-17 he was on, and it went down, uh, it actually ran out of fuel and he had to ditch because they, they they miscalculated where they were supposed to be. And when he went down, he ended up on this raft. But the ship sinks and all they have
2: for food are four little oranges that were in the pilot's jumpsuit. Eight men stuck on three tiny rafts, bathtub-sized rafts, with four little oranges. And there they would remain, near the equator in the boiling hot sun. Some of the men who got rid of their clothing because they thought, most of their clothing because they thought they were going to have to swim for it. Sun, sunburn on top of sunburn on top of boils. It's a bad situation. Eddie Rickenbacker takes control. He's leading these men, promising them that we'll, they'll find us, we'll be saved. But after eight days, those oranges run out pretty damn quick. They have no fresh water. They haven't had a sip of water in eight days. All the provisions sank in the B-17 that flew them out there. Eddie Rickenbacker, a man who's cheated death at this point probably about 130 times, this might be the end. As he sits in the raft, he's got a hat. And he looks up and he feels something touch his head. The eyes are bugging out of their head, and Eddie knows that this is it. This is their chance. A bird has landed on top of Eddie's hat. And he just very slowly, very smoothly grabs it. Grabs it right off the top of his head. He wrings its neck, and although that trip was far from being saved, if he had not done that, that would have been the end of Eddie Rickenbacker. In fact, the papers had already declared him dead. Famous Eddie Rickenbacker declared dead, lost at sea, crash landing, whereabouts unknown. And after they eat that bird, they use the intestines to fish. They stay alive, and Eddie uses that felt hat of his to collect water for a rainstorm on the 10th or 11th day. And the men seem to have hope. But as the food runs out and the water runs out almost quicker than that, the men are in terrible pain. People start drinking seawater. A man tries to kill himself, and Eddie pulls him back in. Won't even shake the guy's hand afterwards. The men are basically united in their hatred for Rickenbacker. He's such a disciplinarian. He keeps telling them that they can they can make it through. They just have to be disciplined. But after two weeks, the Army decides to call off the search. Eddie Rickenbacker, America's ace of aces, World War I hero, CEO of Eastern Airlines, race car driving, professional superstar, is dead at age 52. But Eddie wasn't dead. He was still in the Pacific. He's still fighting for his life with these, on these three rafts. They lose one of the men. He's in, Eddie's, he's, he's in Eddie's raft. He's caring for him, but there's just nothing he can do. He drinks so much seawater, and they have to let him go. They let him drift off into the sea. They take his clothes to clothe some of the other guys who have just horrible sunburn. There's no talk of cannibalizing the man. They simply let him drift away. The men then decide that we're breaking up these rafts. We can cover more ground. Maybe someone will see us. And against Eddie's wishes, they actually do go their separate ways. One of the three rafts actually washes up on a little island. The other raft, on the 24th day, the other raft containing three men, is spotted by a plane. A PT boat is sent to pick them up. And they say there's two more out there. They fly over the island, they find the other one. But still no Eddie. Eddie and the two men with him are spotted later that day by air patrol. But the patrol leaves and Eddie's not even sure if, he's, if they saw them, but they did. And a boat arrives hours later and Eddie Rickenbacker is saved. But I, who would have known Eddie's felt hat saved, uh, saved eight men, well, seven men's lives.
1: Well, it, it, they actually called those things uh, sea swallows, but it was like a seagull is what it was like. But, but it, it fascinated all of them that there was no no land. Where did this thing come from? But it literally did save their lives.
2: So, yeah, they separate the rafts. And, and, and after
1: that, then, one of them got spotted. Then from that, Eddie's wife never quit. Boy, she was continually trying to get them to find him because she knew he was out there and he'd be saved. And it was her persistence that finally made it possible that they actually found the one raft, and they were able to get the rest of them, and they had saved them.
2: Absolutely right. Um, that's another time where Eddie was in the newspaper saying that he had, he had perished. That because is. after two weeks they actually called off that search and, and war hero Eddie Rickenbacker, dead and it was a huge blow to the country at the time. Just like when he was found, it was a huge boon to the country. Yeah. Uh it's it's the it war, was a
1: patriotic boost, you're right. That the the was, war was not going that well no. in nineteen forty two. That's what um, they needed.
2: And and when Rickenbacker gets found, uh it really did boost people's spirits a lot. That's
1: pretty good.
2: Yeah, that's good. We actually found an old uh, press conference that Eddie gave after he was saved after that three and a half weeks on the Pacific Ocean. He actually wrote a book about that experience it's called Seven Came Through. Um, but he gives a press conference just days after being saved to a, a grateful nation.
0: We well, lived on a small rubber raft for 21 days on the broad expanse of the Pacific with only four scrawny little lines. Johnny Bartek, my raft, happened to have an issue Bible in his pocket, and soon we organized morning and evening prayers, praying for our deliverance. Our prayers were answered, and if we hadn't had, or if I hadn't had, seven witnesses, I wouldn't dare tell the story, for a seagull landed on my head and gave us. To sustain us for two days and sufficient bait to the use of its intestines in order that we may catch a couple
2: of fish. Eddie leaves Eastern Airlines in 1963. He travels abroad for many years with his wife Adelaide and dies in Switzerland, the combination of a stroke and pneumonia, in 1973 at the age of 82. He's buried in Greenlawn Cemetery. On the near west side of Columbus. You can go see his grave still today. It's a, it's a beautiful monument. In a 1974, two years after his death, the Lockbourne Air Force Air Force Base outside of Columbus is renamed Rickenbacker Air Force Base. And it still is today. There's a lot of cargo flights that go in now to Rickenbacker. There's even commercial flights that go in now to Rickenbacker, some of the low carrier. Uh, low fare carriers fly in and out of Rickenbacker base. And you can go there and see a Rickenbacker exhibition. We, of course, would suggest you go to Mott's Military Museum in Groveport for all your Eddie Rickenbacker needs. Um, but those are the two best places you can go. Eddie talking about another clip we found. It's difficult to find clips from some of these people back in the day. But we're going to leave you with a clip about Eddie talking about the future of air and his plane, the spad that he flew after the Newport in World War I, and how he saw the future of, of speed.
0: Those of us who flew this little spad in World War I will never forget it. To us it seemed just as deadly an airplane as the modern jet fighter. It's hard to believe, but we took this plane as high as 20,000 feet and without oxygen. Of course, we knew nothing about electrical heating apparatus, or oxygen mass, but we discovered many things about the airplane in World War I. We discovered some of the first principles of air power and combat flying, and those of us who fought in that war came out of us with a pretty clear idea of what the future of flying might be. That's the way the whole aviation history has been. A few men glimpse the future and fly it out. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight, making history. There's so many books you need to see. I like reading, and I like reading. The tip a canoe and Tyler too. from the Queen City to Lake Erie blue. Edison and a man on the moon. many books which will we choose i like reading i like reading
2: our book recommendation this week is enduring courage by john ross it's called eddie rickenbacker and the dawn of the age of speed an amazing book ross does a great job talking about his early years uh, turn of the century columbus ohio which i always find interesting um obviously so much dedicated to his racing years and obviously his years fighting the germans the flying circus as they were called in world war one and everything after the war it's an incredible book it's 400 pages or so but pick it up john ross If you're into Eddie Rickenbacker or Columbus history or Ohio history, um, it is a really fun read. He does an awesome job. uh, So check that book out. That'll do it for episode five of Ohio v. The World. Uh, We have a special thanks to Warren Mott uh, of Mott's Military Museum. You can find it at mott'smilitarymuseum.org. It's an amazing place. $10 for guests. Um, You can become a member there. Also, don't forget, he is building this wonderful 9-11 museum um, and he's asking for donations for that but you can come out to the second annual 9-11 memorial fundraiser it's May 13th at 6 o'clock or 6.30 and that's at the Columbus Zoo so check that out on their website you can sign up on there or honestly you can just show up is going to be served he's going to have three or four different speakers uh, from the New York Police Department Fire Department guys guys who are there um, and Warren will give you a big update on where they're at Cash Bar should be a really fun time I will see you there on May 13th at the Columbus Zoo thanks again to our opening music from Force and the Evergreens our friend Leslie James for doing the intro monologue uh, the lead-in and of course a special thanks to John Elliott the great Columbus musician for his rendition of my song I Like Reading We'll be back in a couple of weeks. This is the fifth episode. We've done five. We're dumping all of them. The launch party is March 25th. I hope you enjoy it. Um, We're going to do probably 12 or 13 episodes a season. So we've got a lot more to do here in season one of Ohio V the World. Uh, join the conversation on Facebook. You can email me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Um, Tell your friends about the podcast. That'd be awesome. Rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher or even up on TuneIn Radio. If you have that app on your phone, they have a lot of great podcasts on TuneIn as well. We'll see you next time.